perhaps the use of the militaristic language in the title of this podcast doesn't really sing out to you, but would you just um, kind of take a leap of faith with me? Because here's what I mean. Some folks think it's leadership that defines leadership and impact. A strong ED, charismatic and eloquent, brings folks to the table to follow. But the real power of a nonprofit is the size of its army and the power they feel to be engaged in the work. And I'm not talking about donors specifically, but that's one group you clearly need in your army. I'm talking about the power that comes with the number of folks who know about your work, recognize its importance, and they want in. Far too many nonprofits, from my perspective, lament on how badly they need more people to be engaged in their work, and yet they are not clear on the strategy of how to do that. What is the key to building an online community of 1.4 million people who are, in fact, the real power in your organization? Seriously, imagine an organization that does, in fact, have a charismatic leader, but one who understands that his power comes from all around him. I've got one for you today. In 2011, this nascent organization had a staff of six, a budget of about $650,000, and a solid but underutilized email address. This civil rights organization placed its bet on the power of building through the power of online advocacy. Today, 2019, Color of Change. It has a budget of over $20 million, a staff of 85 across four offices on the field, and yes, an army, an army of 1.4 million folks who have been ignited into action to make real change, real impact. You're intrigued, aren't you? If you ask yourself this question, how do I get more people invested and involved in my work? Then you, my friends, are in the right place listening to the right conversation because have I got a guest for you. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. In 2005, Rashad Robinson walked into my office for a job interview at GLAAD. Seemed smart and passionate. I liked him a lot. But then I found out that he'd been a contestant on a reality show, and it was all over for me. We digressed. I'm honest, I have TV junkie tendencies. But the truth of the matter is, this guy had me had a hello. I left GLAAD before he did, and then he was poached. He and I spoke. I knew Rashad could do something big and I'm pretty sure he thought so too. But was color of change big enough? Remember what I said, a staff of six and a budget of $650,000. Well, it may not have been big enough then, but my oh my, it sure is now. Rashad Robinson is the president of Color of Change, a leading online racial justice organization driven by more than 1.4 million members. I just like giving, I like saying that number, building political and cultural power for black communities. This organization is creating a more human and less hostile world for all people in America. Color of Change uses an innovative combination of technology, research, media savvy, and local community engagement to build powerful movements and change the industries that affect black people's lives. Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, Washington, prosecutors' offices, Capitol Hills, and city halls all across the country. Rashad is a sought-after keynote speaker nationally, appears regularly as a quoted source, interview guest, and opinion writer in both major and local media. Rashad and successful color change strategies have been profiled in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, Fast Company, Wired, The Hollywood Reporter. Do I have to go on? Sure. CNN, NPR, PBS, BET, and MSNBC. And in 2015, Fast Company named Color of Change one of the six most innovative companies in the world and named Color of Change the number two most innovative company in the nonprofit sector in 2018. In 2016, the Stanford Social Innovation Review profiled this organization for its integrated online, offline strategies, quote, pursuing the right for racial justice at internet speed. 
end quote. Rashad is highly sought after and has been on my podcast wish list for some time. I'm really happy to have snagged him. Rashad, you know how much I love talking with you. Now we get to share the conversation. I'm glad you're here. So great to be with you. So first things first, um, I know about Color of Change, but I'm thinking that some of our listeners may not. Tell us about the organization, its mission, how your organization is unique, and what I like to ask is, what's the problem your organization was um, designed to solve for? So I'll start with the problem um, and then work to sort of who we are. And thank you so much for having me. Um, In 2005, Color of Change was founded in the aftermath of a flood, Hurricane Katrina, that was caused by bad decision makers that really turned into a life-altering disaster by those same bad decision makers. Uh, Your listeners may um, remember Black people on their roofs literally begging for the government to do something and left to die. And the thing about Katrina was that it illustrated things that we already knew. Geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to the planet and so many systems. But at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing Black people. Government wasn't nervous. Corporations weren't nervous. Media wasn't nervous. And when institutions are not nervous about disappointing your community, it doesn't matter what kind of research report that you have that illustrates all the details. It doesn't matter sometimes what legal case you have if you can't implement it. It kind of doesn't even matter what our friends in Silicon Valley may create. We can't code our way out of it or research our way, legal or even nonprofit executive direct our way out of it. That people were on the roofs begging for the government to do something, and the only thing folks felt like they could do was give money to the Red Cross, not work for systemic change. And so Color of Change was founded with a single email to about a 1,000 folks, inviting them into a new movement. And over the course of the last, um, you know, uh, years since we were founded in 2005, Color of Change has run campaigns really challenging the written and the unwritten rules that impact Black people with a deep understanding that we've got to translate the presence of those issues into the power to make change, Um, moving people up a ladder of engagement. And so I'm constantly thinking about what does it mean to give people something strategic to do? You'll never get a petition from Color of Change that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. There's no theory of change in that. And so we're constantly trying to help people manage their political life, what to do, how to take action, how to be meaningful with the things that they're seeing out in the media landscape, from the TV to the internet to the newspaper, and then giving folks a common way to be connected um, in a larger way. And so one, we think of our membership as the 1.4 million people that have taken action in the last eight months. And so it's not anyone that's ever signed a petition. And over 20,000 people in the last year have shown up to in-person Color of Change events. And so we not only have folks that are taking action online, but taking action offline. And all of that is about building a powerful force of Black folks and their allies of every race who want to make um, a commitment to changing the rules and uh, and winning on the issues that matter most. Um, so you said like about 19 things I want to follow up on. Um, this whole notion about nobody during Katrina was nervous about disappointing Black folks. I'm going to guess that one of Color of Change's sort of theories of change is to make institutions nervous about disappointing Black folks. And I guess um, I'm so curious uh, about what that looks like to make an institution nervous. So it, it really is about figuring out what are the, getting out of one, the magical thinking that, um, just because we put out a petition or a press statement that those in power are going to listen just because we're loud means that people will listen. It is figuring out what are the right set of pressure points and how do we leverage people power um, and narrative change to move an agenda. And so an example of that is we've developed this strategy over the last several years of respond, build, pivot and scale, respond to moments, build energy, find the systemic pivot, and then scale that energy over time. And so a a quick story that sort of kind of illustrates that is the story of the work we did around the American Legislative Exchange Council. You know, in the aftermath, you know, when 
we first learned about ALEC, which was this, you know, right-wing 40-year-old organization um, that had been behind um, so many issues like voter suppression and, and, a, and attacking um, people's ability to organize in the workplace, immigration issues. And we found that about ALEC. A question about Alec, just because I suspect there are a lot of listeners that don't know. So Alec is a nonprofit. So, so, so explain what Alec is, because Alec is a not a forty-year-old nonprofit organization that brings, um, according to them, they bring state legislators and business folks, corporations, into retreats together in cities around the country, and they strategize collectively to um, write um, policy that then goes back into the states and get introduced. Alec was so effective that sometimes the state legislators would leave an ALEC retreat and forget to take the heading off the, leg off the um, legislation, introduce the bill, and it would still pass. Um, and and um, this sort of success and track record meant that state legislators were um, really doing the bidding for major corporations, um, oftentimes without their constituencies know their knowing because these retreats were private and off the record and did not have media. And when the... When the voter ID laws were popping up around the country for folks who don't know, like some of them said, you know, you can vote with your gun license, but not your student ID. Right? they were narrowly tailored to prevent certain groups from being able to vote. And we were trying to figure out what to do. We could have done as many petitions as we wanted, but like the there was no power in that petition. There was no theory of change that the state legislators and the governors who were passing those bills didn't matter how many millions of people we had on a petition. Um, even if we got to a million, um, it would not have mattered, right? And so we recognized that we had to figure out another way. And we found out that Alec um, had been behind these um, um, bills and that 98% of Alec's money came from corporations. Corporations every single day came to black folks and say, buy our products or use our services. And so we, we went out to those corporations and we went out with letters um, to about 15 of the 150 corporations, corporations who invested in Black History Month programs, corporations who, um, who ran radio ads on Black radio, who talked about their diversity all the time. And so we went out to about 15 of those corporations while also going out to our membership with a petition that said, stop corporate-funded voter suppression, but without naming any of the corporations. What our goal was, was to give those corporations the ability to leave before being publicly attacked, right? Creating a sense of an opportunity for those corporations. Um, and so we would then have conversations and the companies would get on the phone with us and say, we give a little to the left and we give a little to the right. And we're like, that's great, but there's not two sides to black people voting. This is not an issue of left or right. This is an issue of right and wrong. And so having that conversation, we'd finally get to the final conversation and they'd get their senior level black person on the phone with me. And I talk about voting with my grandfather and they talk about voting with their grandfather. And we would get <laughs> off the phone and sort of go about our way. And while this is happening, right, we have about 150,000 people that have signed this petition where we are still not naming the corporations, but they have joined us in, you know, the effort to stop corporate-funded voter suppression. We are explaining what ALEC is, and we are letting them know that we've let the members know what the theory of change is, that we will be exposing the companies, but we're giving them a chance to, to say it out front. Did I, did, I, um, did I mishear you earlier that your members, you don't ask your members to sign petitions, but you, but you do? Like, I, I, can you, can you, you, you'll never get a petition from us that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up. Okay, good. Back. Thank you for that distinction. Because there's no theory of change. It doesn't matter how many people sign a petition for Mitch McConnell, right? But Coca-Cola, for instance, or a company that, um, that, uh, that um, needs black consumers might be a different story. And so we, what we did with the, um, what we did was we were sort of actively campaigning. And then Trayvon Martin happened. And so much of our effort went into fighting for justice for Trayvon. We were calling on the Justice Department to engage and do something in Sanford. We were mobilizing our members um, throughout the country, supporting rallies in cities around the country and um, registering people to vote at those rallies. And then we found out that the Stand Your Ground law was also an ALEC law written by Walmart, the largest seller of guns, and the NRA, both ALEC members, and pushed into about 20 states around the country. Um, stand your ground. Stand your ground law for listeners who might not know. 
The Stand Your Ground law became famous um, in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin and Jordan Davis in Florida. It is a it is basically a law that um, kind of uh, incentivizes vigilantes. That it, it says that you do not have to retreat. Um, and that um, you don't have any obligation to retreat. However, in essence, what it has meant is it has a, kind of allowed for white folks to sort of shoot black people and ask questions later. And when black people have tried to sort of leverage stand your ground in their own situations, they have not been able to use it. And so um, it's had sort of a really negative um, application and it was pushed by the NRA really in an effort to kind of help people feel like more comfortable buying guns. Um, and so we were mobilizing around Trayvon, found out that the Stand Your Ground law was theirs as well. And then, um, you know, Pepsi pulled out behind the scenes, um, as well as a couple of other companies. And when Pepsi pulled out, we instantly knew that Coca-Cola was going to be our first public target if they didn't leave. And we reached out to Coca-Cola. We gave them the website we gave them a link to the website. We gave them a link to the billboards we would run, the press release, everything. And we said, in 48 hours, we're going live. You have 48 hours to divest from Alec. And uh, 48 hours passed. And Alec, um, and Alec still had a member named Coca-Cola. And we started going live to our members. About 400,000 people had signed the Trayvon petition. About 150,000 had signed the... Um, the uh, Stop Corporate Funded Voter Suppression Petition. And this is really important to the theory of the ladder of engagement, right? Now we're moving people up a ladder to calls, but not asking everyone to call at the same time. We're asking a thousand people every hour and giving them phone numbers to call at Coca-Cola because we could go on for weeks. Um, and, um, and as a result, a thousand, a thousand, a thousand, um, about five hours later, Coca-Cola calls and says, we get it. We are leaving Alec. Please stop having your members call us. Over the course of the next several weeks, we started moving our members up the ladder of engagement, having them show up to um, shareholders meetings. Um, we ran radio ads, um, engaging employees of the company to speak, different companies speaking out. Um, and then, you know, Alec decided they were going to end the committees working on Stand Your Ground and Voter ID Law. And then they thought that that would help us end our campaign. And we said, no, you essentially... Um, spilled some oil in the water and are not telling us how you're going to clean it up. We kept moving up a ladder of engagement. They hired Edelman PR to try to, um, your listeners can't can't see me, but they tried to make me and my dimples angry black man. And, um, <laughs> and, did, a, and, did, and did a bunch of hit pieces with Michelle Malkin and others um, on me, a conservative, a conservative commentator. And all of that to say we um, kept that. Alec um, ended up you know, ending those committees, um, we left them with a $1.5 million budget shortfall. We forced them to, um, you know, close down their swanky offices in D.C. and move to some, some smaller ones out in Virginia. Um, and then kept leveraging that energy over time. But, right, moving from a moment where people are outraged by something that's happened to Trayvon, happening around voter engagement, and being able to move that to some systemic action that actually forces real change at corporations, not just leaving people in whack-a-mole, that game at the carnival where something pops up and you hit it back down, but moving people towards long-term change. Um, what then happens, right, when you win a campaign like that, and there are like tons of campaigns that we've won since then like that, is it creates a new scenario for how institutions have to deal with you. When they get that first letter, are they more likely now to like respond quickly? Do they um, have a, a new incentive structure for how they engage? What does it mean for your members for them to believe that their actions that they took actually led to some real change that they not only saw in their email box, but they saw on MSNBC? And they saw it in real time when everything else could have felt hopeless about that situation. Um, all of those things, right, lead to the ability that you're not just um, providing sort of a, um, an opportunity for people to take action, but you're providing a pathway for people to actually win. I heard a couple of things. I heard um, the ability of your organization to connect a lot of dots, Right, Alec, Trayvon, stand your ground, and to 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 not look at those as isolated incidents, but to actually weave them together. And um, 
you have often talked about turning moments into movements and the these are these are moments that you actually wove together into uh into something of a movement um and um i would assume that um that the impact of people who have done something that isn't just one of those you know, one of those letters, but has actually had real impact, encourages me to tell about 10 or 20 people that they should become a member of Color of Change. Isn't that true? That's absolutely true. I mean, that's how we grow, right? We grow, our membership grows because our members, you know, share petitions and social media. They send it out to folks asking them to join. And that's how we get more people to take action. And so, um, and, you know, being a, winning right after the uh, after the 2016 election 2016 election you know we were really looking for very clear ways to like give our members the ability to hold the enablers of white supremacy accountable what would it mean to not just yell about racists but also like create their real consequences and one and one of many campaigns besides the quit the council campaign where we led the campaign that forced corporations to quit Donald Trump's business council and got a lot of sort of public credit for it. One campaign that I'm actually incredibly excited about um, because it's just ongoing is the work that we have around our what we call our blood money campaign. And it's another example of this moment where um, the incentive structure could just be how am I loud? How am I pushing back? How are we yelling against our opponents? But what we identified was a whole set of credit card companies and um, and processing organizations that were processing fees for white nationalists. Basically, you could go on Richard Spencer's site, a white, well-known white nationalist, and you could enter your PayPal number and make a donation. You could um, help to sponsor buses. You could buy paraphernalia. And so we worked very closely with the Southern Poverty Law Center to identify a bunch of those organizations. And we went to the credit card companies and they said, no, you have to go talk to the banks. And then the banks said, you have to go talk to the credit card companies. And so we built out a platform and got the infrastructure ready. And then when Charlottesville happened, um, we were able to turn on the infrastructure, the blood money campaign and no longer, and then mobilize our members quickly Instantly, many other organizations wanted to join in the platform that we created because it gave them a clear sort of direction. But we had been talking to these companies for months and months. Um, so, like, there was nothing they could say. This wasn't new to them. Um, and suddenly, no longer were they telling us to go talk to the banks. They suddenly were like, here's the list of groups that we are no longer processing fees for. Some of those groups have now shut down. I actually had one of the leaders of one of those organizations find some time on my agenda, on my schedule where he wanted to explain why his group wasn't a white nationalist organization and white supremacist organization, which was the most, one of the most surreal moments I've had in my career. Um, all of that to say, um, creating clear consequences um, and forcing um, those that sort of occupy, uh, it can occupy the middle of the road. And if they occupy the status quo, that means they're oftentimes putting their um, finger or their hand on the scale for those who are holding back progress, right? If someone puts their hand on the status quo, which, which could have meant years ago, no marriage equality, that means that they're actually supporting opponents of equality. And so what we're, what we're trying to do here is force those that would like to occupy the sidelines because it's easier to recognize that they are going to be nervous about disappointing us, that there will be consequences and that they have to actually make change. 10, 15 years from now, they will be talking at their galas and their events about the great work they did to cut off white nationalists. But I know right now it's been a hard task to actually get them to do it. But 15 years from now, they'll all be celebrating it and talking about the brave choices they made. There's a really great article in Wired about your work, and you talk about something called presence to power, helping online civil rights um, move beyond mere visibility. And that's part of what I'm hearing and what you're talking about. And I... <clears throat> 
I also, I also want our listeners to be hearing what Rashad is talking about and extrapolating it for your own cause. Whatever it is you're trying to move downfield, whether it's educating the world about homelessness or immigration or, you know, fill in the blank, right? Um, that, that this strategy is a strategy that is, um, it, it has universal application. Mm-hmm. And um, is this what we're talking when you talk about presence to power, moving mm-hmm. civil rights beyond mere visibility? Is is that what this is? What you just spoke about? Absolutely, presence is important. Presence is uh, retweets. It's a story on the front page of the newspaper. It's you know maybe your organization getting mentioned in your favorite um, popular TV show. It's it's a whole lot of things that is actually important. So like, I'm not minimizing presence, but oftentimes when we mistake presence for power, we think we've done something that we haven't actually done. We think we moved something that we haven't actually moved. Power is the ability to change the rules. Sometimes it's the written rules of policy. Other times it's the unwritten rules of culture. But being able to move, um, to change the rules is the metric that we live by. So presence could be a black president, right? But that doesn't mean we've changed the rules around race in this country. Um, uh, you know, and like being able though to do that means that then you are changing um, what's acceptable and you're also advancing what's possible. And changing that, right, from a narrative change perspective, narrative has become such a buzzword in the kind of nonprofit movement. I like to think about narrative as the rules and the norms of society. And an example from the LGBT context is like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was acceptable anytime you had a story on LGBT issues to have an ex-gay, you know, someone who had went to reparative therapy even on some of the shows that we love the most right now, um, that we would that we considered liberal at that time, um, it was completely acceptable. And 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 changing what's acceptable and advancing what's possible means that you change the terms of the debate, and that is no longer acceptable across a wide range of platforms. Even some of the most conservative platforms, you don't see it, and that's because of you know the work that you led at Glad and um, so much of the work um, that's happened um, over the course of the last fifteen years, twenty years, and. Um, And that, right, is making institutions nervous. It's about changing the narrative. And it's about recognizing that presence alone doesn't mean that you have power. Um, There's no question that when I opened this podcast and I talked about a small organization of $650,000 and what is it, eight years later, you're at 20 million and 85 people. Um, There are a whole bunch of people who are listening saying, can I have what Rashad is having? (laughs) And, um, you know, I I, I think it's kind of hilarious that you and I spoke long ago about whether or not this was a big enough pond. And clearly the obvious solution was, uh, why don't we just build a bigger pond? And so um, what do you think for you has been the the key to scaling and mm-hmm. what's and and extrapolate that for folks who might be listening what is the key to scaling an organization using yours as a as a an object lesson well that's a that's a great question a lot of folks ask me about that regularly now in the last year or two years and it's actually an interesting question because i when you, when you're in the middle of it you don't actually realize that you've scaled and so $20 million sounds like a lot to a lot of people, but when you like, at each phase, if you grow, you feel like, oh, I need more um, to actually right. do the things that I'm trying to do. And not more in sort of like a capitalist perspective of a, I always need to grow, but I recognize where my limitations are, that that resource could change that. And so, you know, one thing that um, has been clear is having a very strong sort of um, theory of change as an organization and a core of like what is color of change and what isn't. And, and so as we've grown to be very true to our mission, to what actually makes us unique, color of change is the only national black civil rights organization that does not take corporate money. So we didn't take corporate money at 650,000 and we don't take corporate money at um, 20 million. Um, and, um, and that, and so getting there meant that we didn't change that. That changed the type of campaigns that we run. It means that, you know, our value add and our competitive advantage in 
in the civil rights space becomes very clear. Um, it means that we're constantly providing a service and a value add to our members, and we're keeping a high bar about what what winning looks like. And so we have a victory rubrics that we really think about and talk about in terms of evaluating our victories, that we look at it from both what does it mean to have systemic wins versus um, sort of momentum achievements, achievements that sort of move us forward but don't actually change the rules? Um, and what does it mean to, to, to for what we take credit for, whether it's something that would have happened without us to a substantial victory that couldn't have happened without our leadership? And being honest about those things and really actually, um, as a result, incentivizing the right type of um, day-to-day behavior inside of the organization. Because as it scales, I used to, when we were at five staff, see every email that went out the door, um, see every campaign. I wrote a lot of the stuff that go went to our members. That doesn't happen anymore. And so if you don't actually have systems and infrastructure to scale and to keep quality control, what will happen is that the incentive will be money. The incentive will be chasing donors. The incentive will be... Um, things other than sort of the, the results, right? If we had gotten to $7 million, but kept our kind of core element, to me, that's much better than getting to $20 million and not actually delivering results. Like we are here to um, serve and win on behalf of black people and to provide an avenue for the type of change that makes everyone's lives better. And if we're not actually doing that, then someone else should replace us. Someone else should come along and do this work. And so those are the things that I think about a lot when it's scale. And then the final thing I'll say is that you cannot um, underestimate talent and being able to both attract, uh, retain, and and grow and, and help and support leaders inside of your organization um, because nothing can be a one woman, one man, one person show. Um, it has to be um, systems that empower and allow for many different leaders to run and move things. And so being able to find talent and being able to plug people into the right positions for me is, um, I know when I've done it and I can like point to places where I haven't always done it and the results are like crystal clear. And it's also part of the value proposition of color of change, which is you've actually empowered those 1.4 million people to be leaders in their own way. And so if you're not actually investing in that in your own organization, then you're actually sort of not true to true to what color of change is actually all about. Yep. People, people can, um, people can sniff that stuff out quickly. And, you know, we have volunteer squads and teams, um, you know, in cities on the country who are working, build, um, plans and agendas. Um, we have a whole platform that allows for folks to run and win campaigns that are sort of, um, through local voices. And all of that for me is incredibly important that we are creating an organization that lives beyond any individual leader that has it, it, leadership matters, um, talent matters, but um, infrastructure um, is critically important um, and infrastructure has to last beyond sort of an individual person. So <clears throat> uh, we all know that that an army like you have built is key and you've actually been also clear that um, clickability, if you will, is not impact. So let's say you have a clear mission and you're trying to build engagement. Um, and, uh, you know, this is advice for the folks that are listening. How might you get started? What might be um, the recipe? So also in this wonderful article about Color of Change and Wired, you talked about setting the bar low, so sharing a link on Facebook, and then carrying people along and moving up this, this ladder of engagement, which you've talked about. Um, strategies that you might share with listeners that um, – mm -hmm. Because because the moving them up is the key to growing the base. It's yeah, it's growing the base, growing like people's like connection and affinity to the organization and willingness to do more. Right, um, you know, last year we had eight you know, 81,000 unique individual donors, um, small dollar contributions raised about $2 million. That's a kind of an average, um, 
um, donation of about $24, um, if, if my math just added up there. And, um, and that, right, for me is um, another clear sort of indicator of people's connection, affinity, relationship to the organization. Um, I say all that to say that, um, you know, one of the things that we think about, you know, in terms of our membership and how we um, sort of cultivate people, you know, is thinking about the wide range of things that people can do. So the small, the small thing at the bottom of the ring of the ladder of engagement is the first thing, but we're constantly thinking about how do we make someone a highly active member? And that means that we have to listen. And so for your, for your listeners who are listening, it's that you may have the best idea, but you've got to listen to your people. There is not a, um, um, a month that goes by that I don't have some great idea about a campaign that fails miserably at some point or doesn't reach our threshold meaning that we test all of our campaigns it doesn't mean that we don't run we it doesn't mean that we don't run something that tests bad it means that we're trying to figure out how to make it test well how do we like figure out the language and the um um, avenue to actually get people to engage because we don't just want to put our names on a bunch of press releases saying that we care about something if we actually can't get our members to, to care about something. And so a perfect example is, you know, an issue like immigration, which was challenging for us for a number of years, where a lot of our members felt like it wasn't a black issue. Um, and lo and behold, we had to do a lot of work to figure out the frame meaning like criminalization of communities of color um, and increased law enforcement in communities being the frame that sort of got people there. Then we had to like, then Donald Trump became the gift on that issue where like <laughs> our members like sort of were willing to close ranks in a new way. Um, but now the issue reaches um, full base capacity where we can reach people. So the thing I say about everyone's folks may not have the most sophisticated sort of data infrastructure, um, we didn't when I got here, um, but um, over time, finding the ways that you're listening to people as much as you're talking, finding the ways that you are um, hearing though their feedback on what you're sharing, and, and using that feedback to get people to feel like they can act. That's the final thing I'll say, right? There are organizations that sit at the intersection of many things, right? So it's many, you know, for advocacy organizations, some are going to be at the intersection of ideas and analysis. Some are going to be at the intersection of analysis and action. You know, for us, we like to think about that full range for us, um, but really do fall more in the analysis to action. And all of that for us, once again, is how do you keep people engaged is about how do you consistently provide strategic action for people to take that's meaningful, that people feel followed up on, and that people feel like over time is worth their energy and their effort. Um, <clears throat> we are talking with my friend, former colleague, and a guy the press has called, quote, the avatar of social justice's future. Rashad <laughs> Robinson, the president of Color, Color of Change, a leading online racial justice organization, driven by more than 1.4 million members, building political and cultural power for black communities. Color of Change is creating a more human and less hostile world for all people in America using an innovative combination of technology, research, media savvy, and local community engagement to build powerful movement movements and change the industries that affect Black people's lives. Um, we've talked about these 1.4 million uh, people as if they are uh, a monolithic group, but we know mm -hmm. they're not. Tell me who they are. Are we talking mostly millennials? And if yes, how are you working to capture uh, boomers who maybe have more time mm -hmm. on their hands? Are they overwhelmingly black folks? Mm -hmm. who, who are these 1.4 million people? Well, they're overwhelmingly black, um, actually overwhelmingly black women. Um, makes up the largest portion of our membership. Uh, the um, the kind of um, average age or the sort of mean at a, you know the mode member who shows up the most um, in our in our membership is like a black woman in her like mid forties. So it's not millennials; it's um, over uh, millennials. Um, we do have a large boomer. Um, uh, group. And that's when I think about sort of the email portion of our membership. When I think about those who engage us on social platforms or via text, that tends to skew younger. Uh, and so we've put a lot of investment, both in terms of building our 
infrastructure to reach those audiences, we've built out a, off, um, uh, a studio in our New York office that allows us to um, develop our own content do more straight to camera. We have a, um, a partnership with Now This and some other platforms that allows us to sort of leverage um, the actual uh, kind of narrative infrastructure. So we're not just relying on the folks who are already watching our Facebook page, but thinking about how do we move our content beyond um, our audiences, but it allows us to speak with an unfiltered voice. It doesn't mean I don't go on MSNBC or CNN. I do that quite often, but recognizing that if we can speak with an unfiltered voice quickly, we're more likely to get a better hit on MSNBC or CNN because they're also experiencing our content in the world and we have our own independent channel. It also means that we don't have to wait around for them to invite us on to actually say something that um, we can move content. And so um, our folks, um, our media consumers, they are like 90% registered to vote. And so a lot of the work that we oftentimes do is, um, is leverage our members through like the voter file to register their friends, family, and neighbor. You can find out if someone is not registered in your house and we can send them an email and say, hey, these two people are not registered or these, can you help us register them? And so thinking about our members as leaders, as, as, um, as sort of nodes, in their communities and thinking about them also as narrative infrastructure. And what I mean by narrative infrastructure is vehicles to move our content. What does it mean to have echo chamber? What does it mean to have people who are singing from the same choir in their churches, in their schools, um, in their communities? And thinking about each of our communication and each of our engagement with them as an opportunity to move our message, to move our campaigns, to move our work forward. Uh, just smart from start to finish. Um, so a question for you, um, and I, I get this a lot from folks who work, you know, it doesn't have to be nationally. It can be within a community or within a state where there are different, what I would call instruments in the sector orchestra, right? So a numerous organizations in a state that are tackling immigration or homelessness or, and um, you and I both know that sometimes uh, playing well in the sandbox with your colleague organizations um, is not, is, is, doesn't, doesn't necessarily come naturally. And I, um, I wonder um, as sort of this nimble organization in the mm -hmm. uh, civil rights sandbox, uh, how you would characterize sort of your relationship in that sandbox. More importantly, um, sh should a nonprofit leader care about what role it plays in that sandbox? And if they, sh and if they should, um, What's what's the best approach? So there, there were three questions in there. <laughs> so I think so I think caring is is deeply important, and also like aligning that caring with what you're trying to achieve and what you need to achieve it, and not only what you need to achieve this like victory that's right in front of you, but what you may need to achieve the next three victories after that. And gaming that out is incredibly important to like how you may need to work with folks and engage with folks. And so you know. Quickly, we think, I think about this um, a lot because it's been an evolution for us. You know, being a $650,000 organization that had six staff, what it meant to like sit at coalition tables or even engage locally and how people thought of you as a threat or not when you moved in on an issue looks different than it does now. Um, and so, um, you know, we've, you know, given sort of some of our corporate um, accountability work, we've sometimes tussled with other civil rights organizations because they've been on a, you know, what, what I believe is the wrong side on issues like net neutrality or, um, you know, some of the banking issues. Uh, but at the same time, we've found ways to close ranks when big criminal justice issues have come up and work together. Um, you know, color of change still, even in this digital phase, occupies a very unique um, space in that we have by far the most um, advanced um, and developed digital infrastructure out of any of the civil rights infra 
And so when we come to an issue, we're not just coming because we can run our mouths. We can come because we can run a campaign and we can do it in a way that other people can't do it. And so it's important for me then is like, what are we leaving behind? How are we partnering with local organizations so maybe they benefit and are able to grow their list because of the partnership with us? Um, all of that for me also is a value add to my members. If I can make sure that they are also connected with something locally, they're more likely to see us as well as someone who's providing a service to them long term. And so we've um, really worked hard to develop and keep really strong um, relationships with grassroots because we used to be the small guy. And, uh, and, in, you know, and in terms of the larger progressive movement, we are not as big as Planned Parenthood or ACLU or other organizations that we regularly partner with. Um, this last election cycle, we, did a, we were part of a four-organization, four um, $21 million PAC program with Planned Parenthood, SCIU, um, and the Center for Community Change. We're the youngest and the and the um, and and had the smallest budget out of all the organizations at the table. And for us, um, and even though we may be in a lot of spaces now in the grassroots, where we're the biggest, it was important for me to be in that coalition as well um, to be able to like do fundraising with Cecile Richards and learn from her as she sort of walked through. Um, that effort to be able for our field team to work hand in hand with field teams that have been doing this work for much longer. I think all of that is incredibly important to sort of being able to um, think about not just like what you're leaving behind and what you're providing, but what you're learning and how we're constantly pushing ourselves um, from an innovation perspective, but also from just a quality control perspective. So we have been talking with Rashad Robinson, who's the president of Color of Change, and if you've been listening, it would be hard to miss how incredibly passionate and how incredibly smart he is. Um, if you've ever heard him, I hope sometime you'll have the opportunity to hear him. Um, I was going to say from a pulpit, but I think maybe I'll say from a podium instead, uh, <laughs> that he's a very inspirational and eloquent speaker. And I thought maybe we should, we should leave you today um, with some thoughts. Um, what do you tell people, Rashad? Here we are in this uh, polarized world. Uh, Stephen Colbert referred to it once as a broken and broken-hearted world. And there's often this feeling that, uh, uh, more than a, f a feeling that we're swimming upstream. And nonprofit leaders can get uh, find themselves pretty demoralized, even though in in my mind they're the superheroes in our society. Um, advice for them about, uh, you know, sort of how to how to be in this space, how to, um, how to think about their role in creating a more perfect union. So I think a lot about, um, I think about those, a lot of those who came before me and not in some like inspirational alone, sort of like um, kind of uh, postage stamp kind of way, but them as like real living beings. I have a one of my favorite pictures in my office is this picture of Fannie Lou Hamer, the incredible organizer, and Muhammad Ali. And they're sitting together talking. You have one of the best organizers that ever existed and one of the most famous cultural figures. And sort of the intersection between culture and organizing and what people have constantly had to do to remake this country and, and to move this country forward and to recognize that no situation that we are currently in is just unique. We're not walking this path alone for the first time, but other people have walked these um, paths before us. And, you know, I was reminding a staff member of mine this morning um, that I fundamentally believe we can win. And that's what I expect out of people in my organization, is that we believe we can win. And that belief changes what you do and how you do it. It means that you're not just doing the thing that you did before because you do that thing because the funder asks you to do it and you repeat and you rinse and repeat over and over again because we believe that we're here for perpetuity. The same way foundations oftentimes think they're here for perpetuity to serve the people and do the thing because they'll always be the same type of poverty. They'll always be the same type of racism. They'll always be the same type of homophobia. But if we win and if we have strategies because we believe we can win, then we show up differently and we do the work differently and we lean in a different way. And that 
um, there's no kind of um, program plan or budget strategy or um, convening that can replace that. Now, if you don't have those things, if you don't have infrastructure, your passion won't cover up that. But if you don't have sort of a belief in um, that you can win, then what you will do is you will make decisions that fall into sort of the nonprofit world of we just want to check all the boxes so that we like don't get fined or we don't get in <laughs> trouble or that we like do the thing that we're supposed to do. Believing that you can win, believing that you can advance um, and make the world a better place and, and that you can not just not just translate the presence, but create a new set of power. That for me, um, for anyone who's listening, for anyone who wants to be in this work, I believe that that has to be fundamental to how we engage. Um, I got nothing to add to that other than I agree with you completely and utterly. Um, Rashad, I really appreciate all the work that you do. I appreciate your friendship, and I, uh, I, I know that you get the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, and I'm totally happy that I could share you with my listeners today. Thank you. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, so I leave you with just a couple of thoughts. Um, resources uh, are pretty key to your ability to become a more effective leader, and um, no shortage of them in my shop. Uh, JoanGary.com reaches about 100,000 unique visitors a month from 170 countries and is written specifically with an eye towards board leaders and staff leaders partnering together. Uh, this blog, which you've been listening to, uh, my book, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. You can learn more about it uh, at nonprofitsormessy.com or just go grab a copy at Amazon. Um, it would make me very happy if you bought a copy for every one of your board members. Um, board members don't know nearly enough about what it means to lead in a nonprofit organization. So um, tr trust me when I say you don't make a lot of money um, writing a book, but if I get it into a lot of hands, it will have been a better day at the office. And then last but not least, the Nonprofit Leadership Lab is our online membership site for uh, board and staff leaders of small and mighty nonprofits. It's a subscription-based service with a monthly fee. Uh, you can learn more about it at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. We only open registration twice a year, and uh, you're in luck as we are just about to open the doors sometime this spring. So go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com and join the wait list and learn more about the resources and the sense of community um, that is uh, resident in the Leadership Lab. And um, I'll leave you just with the word community. I think what we heard from Rashad today is that he has built a community that has helped um, advance uh, civil rights by combining both presence and power. And he has done that by building community, by investing in the notion that every one of us is a leader. And um, uh, I don't think I need to say anything more than that other than thank you for the work that you do, and I'll see you next time. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at JoanGary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.